Welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at Safer World asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. I am Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Goggio. I'm an independent analyst and a PhD candidate at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Italy. Today, we will be speaking to Roy Isbister and Elizabeth Kirkham from Safer World and the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood, Chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee and member of the Committee on Arms Export Controls. Before the release of the integrated review, we discuss where the UK is on leadership, on the arms trade and what it should do differently. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to have you here. Liz, this is going to be a bit of a broad question, uh, but could you briefly describe the key arms transfer debates and all the concerns in the 90s and 2000s, and perhaps explain the role that the UK played in addressing them? Yes, thank you very much. In the early 90s, there were significant concerns around the roles that EU member states had played in supplying arms to the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. Um, And there was also the associated arms to Iraq scandal, which was very prominent in the UK in the early mid-90s, but which also impacted on other EU member states. And the way that these events unfolded showed clearly that the EU member states' arms export policies were widely diverging, especially in respect of countries and regions of concern, uh, such as the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. Also, there was a significant lack of transparency And there were few details available on who was selling what arms to whom. And this was a real concern for organisations such as Safer World in the early and mid-1990s. So the EU response to these issues was to conclude the agreement of eight criteria on arms exports. These addressed issues such as human rights, regional stability, diversion and development. But soon it became clear, even after these criteria had been adopted, that they'd had very little impact and that EU member states' policies continued to diverge. During that time in the early 90s, Safer World and a small group of UK NGOs developed the idea of an EU code of conduct, which was based on the EU criteria, but which elaborated the provisions to make them more substantive. We drafted our own code of conduct and we worked with NGOs across Europe to build support for this among civil society, parliamentarians and government officials. Back in the UK, the Conservative government in the early and mid-1990s was in quite a difficult place. The Scott inquiry into arms to Iraq was launched and this highlighted significant deficiencies in the legislation and regulations that underpin UK arms export controls. But before they could act to address these deficiencies, there was a general election which led to uh, new Labour coming to power. Thanks to some advocacy work that Save World had done in the run-up to the election in 1997, the Labour government was elected on a manifesto that included commitment to securing agreement on a European code of conduct on the arms trade. This was delivered a year later during the UK's presidency of the European Council. So by the late 1990s, the UK had become a leader, a progressive force in many ways, 
in relation to arms export controls, certainly in Europe. And at national level, they began to publish an annual report on arms exports, and they also established the Committees on Arms Export Controls, which is still in existence today. This introduced a significantly greater level of transparency and accountability into UK arms exports. During the mid and late 1990s, Safer World was also working with NGOs internationally to build support for an international agreement to regulate the arms trade. This became known as the Arms Trade Treaty. Thanks, Liz. That was a really comprehensive background to these issues and sets up this conversation nicely. And in 2013, the Arms Trade Treaty was signed. Roy, what was it? Well, the the Arms Trade Treaty, or the ATT, um, the clue is in the title. It's a global treaty. It's international. It's legally binding. And it sets the rules for when it is and isn't okay to traffic conventional arms across borders. So conventional arms, that's from small arms, from pistols, their ammunition, right up to aircraft carriers, fighter aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. And again, important to stress that this is about the movement of those arms across international borders. So it looks at uh, when you are and are not allowed to transfer, and it requires states to assess certain risks before they make that decision whether to allow transfers or not. So the risk that the arms once transferred might contribute to international humanitarian law violations or violations of international human rights law, for example. It also requires states to report on their imports and exports each year. So we gain more information about what the arms trade actually looks like, which is important. It requires states to build a national system for the actual control of these transfers. There are many states in the world that basically don't have any rules. So even if the government doesn't like what a company or citizens within their borders are doing, they may not have the the legal right to prevent that. So it's about setting up those systems. One of the things it doesn't have, though, which is quite important, is it has no real enforcement mechanism in the treaty. So the decision-making still rests with states. There is no body sitting above states to tell them whether they are right or wrong. States still have the right to make those decisions. Going to the topic of today's discussion and thinking about the UK's role in leading some of the key policies in the arms trade, what was the UK role in the ATT? Did it play an important role in leading the establishment of it? It played a very important role. The Arms Trade Treaty, if you go all the way back to the beginning, was an idea that grew from civil society, that came from civil society. Organisations like Safer World was there at the ground floor. Nobel Peace Laureates was another group which was kind of fundamental at the the early stages. But for 10 or more years, progress was, there was progress towards that, but it was very, very slow. And it wasn't until the UK decided to throw its weight behind the idea of of an arms trade treaty, which was in 2005, that really did change things. It kind of gave a, a turbocharge to the process. The UK took the idea of the arms trade treaty into the UN, into a UN process, one year later in 2006. And then the UK was at the forefront of efforts by states to take that from an idea to an actual treaty. Uh, there was a the group called the co-authors, seven states, which shepherded the ATT 
ICT through the, the UN process, and the, and the UK was one of those seven states. And then we forward to 2013, when the treaty was actually agreed, and the UK was, again, right at the centre of that process, all the way through the process. And what was the implications of the ATT? What happened afterwards? The ATT has had a number of implications, I guess you would say. So it has this idea that states are responsible for any equipment that leaves or enters their territory. That has been underlined in international law. So and that's been internationalized. And the idea of taking this risk-based approach to deciding whether to transfer arms or not, that has been universalized. So that's basically agreed as the appropriate way forward. That wasn't formally the case. And in theory, what the arms trade treaty should lead to is fewer problematic or irresponsible arms transfers. It should also result in greater transparency because of the reporting requirements that are included, uh, the obligations that are included in the treaty. However, of course, words on paper are one thing, implementation on the ground is another. So when you try and look at what the difference the arms trade treaty has made, it's a difficult thing to do. But it, it certainly is the case that there are a number of states that didn't have any systems before that are now building the systems which give them the possibility of exercising effective control. There have been some improvements in reporting. Not all states are meeting their reporting obligations, which is disappointing. Work goes on. It is slightly better than it used to be. But it's it's very hard to judge whether there's been an actual change in exporting practice by states so far. But something that has been disappointing is that the states of the arms trade treaty, the states parties, so there's 110 states parties, they have so far proved rather unwilling to challenge each other when it comes to exports that I think most people would regard as problematic. One of the most controversial areas of UK's foreign policy is the selling of arms to Saudi Arabia, especially because of the kingdom's role in the conflict in Yemen. Could you describe the history of this relationship and explain the main problems with it now? I think the key word that strikes me when you're talking about uh, this relationship is dependence. The UK has got itself into a situation where it is very dependent on Saudi Arabia as a huge customer of UK military equipment. And that goes back for decades now, go, um, four decades, I guess, to the 1980s and the Al-Yamama sale of tornado aircraft and associated equipment to Saudi Arabia, which at the time was the biggest um, sale in history. And that dependence has become a problem for a couple of reasons. Historically, it wasn't necessarily for the use of that equipment. And I'll, I'll explain a bit more what I mean about that in a moment. But I suppose historically, it's the, it's the corruption angle was a huge issue. And there is a history of corruption with this deal. It's well known. And that has led to a compromise of principles, I think, by the, by the UK. And I should hasten to add, this is not Saudi corruption. This is Saudi and UK corruption, both sides involved in that. And the most glaring example of that was when Tony Blair in the 2000s basically killed a Crown prosecution investigation into corruption in Saudi arms sale because of what he feared that would do to the Saudi-UK relationship. So like I say, there was this history of not using weapons. And in a way, I, I think when I was looking at this at the time, this didn't really occur to me. I didn't quite see the big picture. These were the perfect arms sales, large 
value of equipment that was high-tech and therefore was useful in terms of the UK's own production for its own purposes. But it was equipment that really was highly unlikely to be used. The Saudis were not buying this to use it. And that probably all changed around the time of the Arab Spring, combined with a shift, generational shift. And Saudi and some other states in the region became much more interested in actually using this equipment. And that's where we see the problem now that you mentioned, which is supplying arms that are used in the conflict in Yemen. These arms really are being used, but the the dependence is is locked in and it's, it's difficult to escape from. So we've got Saudi using these weapons to prosecute a war in Yemen with flagrant disregard for the rules of war, massive destruction of civilian infrastructure, massive loss of life of civilians. The UN is just describing at the moment, talking about Yemen as being on the brink of the biggest famine in decades. And this is a political famine, as is often the case. This is being caused by the war and the actions of those who are prosecuting the war. Now, there are no good guys here. It's it's all sides. All warring parties are responsible for this. So that's the Houthis and their supporters like Iran, etc. But also Saudi, UAE and other members of their coalition and their supporters, which includes the UK. Now, Andrew Mitchell was on the radio talking about UK complicity in the war. Now, he was talking in the context of the UK reducing its aid or the, the likelihood that the UK is going to significantly reduce the aid that is providing to Yemen at the moment. It's also relevant in terms of the arms transfers. Most state, other states have now walked away from this. Most European states have walked away from this. The US is in the process potentially of walking away from supporting this. But the UK feels very stuck. I don't think the government wants to be here. I don't think anyone is comfortable with the situation that they find themselves in. But this kind of dependency relationship just keeps the UK locked in and it can't figure out how to get out. Liz, besides this, what do you think are the biggest challenges with regards to responsible regulation of arms sales over the next decades? I think I'd like to highlight two key challenges, namely the the potential effect of Brexit and also the post-pandemic economic challenges, because I think both of these could have a significant impact on UK arms export policy over the next several years. In terms of Brexit then, post-Brexit, the UK is no longer bound by the EU composition on arms exports, which is formerly the EU Code of Conduct, which I mentioned earlier. In addition, the UK has chosen not to continue participating in the EU denial notification mechanism. This means that the UK no longer notifies EU member states when they refuse an arms export licence application, and the EU member states no longer notify the UK of any denials that they have issued. As a result, the UK and EU member states' policies, I think, are likely to diverge going forward, potentially returning to the more competitive environment of the 1980s and the 1990s, and potentially a tendency towards the notion that if we don't sell, someone else will. Then there's the question of the impact of the challenging economic landscape that lies ahead of us because of the current pandemic. I think in difficult economic times, countries tend to pay less attention to the rules that prevent them from generating foreign currency revenue, etc. And particularly, this is the case in sectors where where they're market leaders. The UK is a, a leading manufacturer and exporter of conventional arms, in particular certain types of munitions and warheads for missiles. So I think that trade in these and other types of arms could well be seen as something to be promoted and encouraged. 
Indeed, as Roy was just mentioning, this this seems likely when considering the experience of the past six years in relation to arms sales to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen and the devastating consequences that have ensued. Successive administrations have failed to apply established rules in good faith, and I fear that there is little reason to expect this to change in the face of the serious economic challenges that inevitably lie ahead. Thank you, Liz, for outlining these two huge challenges so clearly. We have heard a bias from both Roy and Liz on the UK legal obligation to stop arms export when there is a clear risk of violations. But there is, as we know, continued support to, say, the Saudi regime on foreign or security policy grounds. Now, you've been in government, you've been involved in the decision-making process, and now as a member of the Parliamentary Committee on Arms Export, control and also as chair of the House of Commons Defence Committee, you have a key role in holding the government to account. So from this almost unique perspective, how do you think the government should be managing these sometimes competing agendas, these sometimes competing imperatives? Well, thank you for having me on. It's absolutely right to say there are competing agendas here. And it's important to place uh, the Yemen conflict in context, because this does go back decades, in fact, and how unstable that region has been. We were at the forefront of trying to get a political resolution and support President Haiti. And it was the advent of the Houthis that took over Sana. So there was a legitimate cause to support the Saudi-led coalition at the start. What we've seen, though, is that this country that we've sold high-tech weapon systems to doesn't have the skill sets to operate a military campaign successfully in order to lead to encouraging people to come around the table and to get the political resolution that we've wanted to. You cannot bomb people from 20,000 feet and expect results. And I think that penny should have dropped sooner from the British perspective to say that the Saudi coalition's approach, well-intentioned though it might have been, is actually causing a huge amount of collateral damage and a lot of confusion, a lot of opportunity for the Houthis and indeed the Iranians to exploit how bad Saudi Arabia and the coalition was conducting this campaign. And I think we've seen that reflected by a change in attitude in the United States. They have now stopped exports that are connected with uh, Yemen. And I believe it's quite right that we should follow suit because this is not working. It's not leading to any results. It is, as has been touched on leading to the biggest humanitarian disaster in the world. And I think Britain must show some leadership here. We currently are presidency of the the G7. Uh, We hold the presidency, the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council as well. And we have a long history and connectivity with Yemen too. So I do hope that in the spirit of global Britain, we will rethink our approach to both Saudi Arabia and to Yemen and be more front-footed and bolder in taking the courage to revisit our commitment to Yemen in order to try and end this terrible civil war, which is raised, and get some form of political stability there. Making these difficult decisions around how to account for competing agendas or imperatives will be a key feature of what the integrated review is supposed to do. I'm interested to hear how you think it should account for global trends and potential risks of the global arms trade. Well, really interesting questions there. And yes, we await the integrated review in the UK. The purpose of these reviews, they sometimes can be quite technical and go down to what equipment we're going to give our armed forces. Actually, they're more fundamental than that. It's a grand statement of what Britain's intentions are, what our ambitions will be over the next decade, 
on the international stage. It also confirms what threats are coming over the horizon. And the answers to those two then gives you a clear direction as to how your defense posture should actually adapt. And there's a massive tilt, understandably, because of cyber and space threats too. But we mustn't forget our conventional capabilities as well. There's been lots of talk about Queen Elizabeth chuntering across the South China Sea somehow as if that's going to change China's behavior. I think we need to look closer to home at some of the issues and challenges and the hotspots that are around the Middle East and Europe, which we're partly connected with. Yemen, for example, we just touched on that. Libya is another place where both a French president and a British prime minister you know, declared some form of victory, and now the country continues to fall apart. Afghanistan, Iraq as well, insurgencies and extremism is on the rise again. And then closer to home, we have a challenge with Russia as well, English Channel, and then the Arctic too. Lots of things for us to firstly confirm that these are indeed threats and then design the necessary defence architecture to ensure that we not only protect British interests, but also our allies' interests. And finally, that we are able to have that umbrella of security to encourage prosperity. Linking that back to the question of arms then and the way that the UK provisions itself and there has been this traditional understanding that in order to do that in in an efficient and effective way, part of that, that comes with the need to sell overseas and the chasing of those overseas markets has led to some circumstances which I would argue uh, um, have been very inappropriate sales. And again, I come back to the the whole uh, Yemen situation. How do you see that almost a contradiction, if you like, in how to manage these competing imperatives, how to manage that going into the future? Again, it's a really good question. And it prompts the absence, perhaps, of a grand strategy for Yemen and indeed the Gulf, because they're, they're intertwined. We've just seen the CIA report released on the Jamal Khashoggi killing, and it was actually sat with Donald Trump for a while, but uh, he refused to release it. And it shows a different attitude that the Biden administration is taking towards, towards going on in Saudi Arabia. And uh, we should recognize that too, that we want to absolutely encourage Saudi Arabia to open up, to advance, but operate by the international rules and transparency that we are all supportive of. That does mean that if we are wanting to sell arms, that particularly with an, through an ally, a close and important ally, then we have greater recognition and understanding as to how those weapon systems might be used. We decided in the war against the Houthis that overtook the capital Senna to not participate in. We didn't participate in And yet it's exactly the British leadership, in hindsight, that might have allowed the pushing back and the reconciliation of the various warring factions, including terrorism. Al-Qaeda remains firmly based in Yemen. We've become too hesitant, is an easy way of saying it, too risk averse. We're happy to sell these weapon systems to other people, and then we get caught out because they don't use them well. Our advice, where to use them, how to use them, and in conjunction with a wider political directive, I think could have allowed the civil war to be included far, far faster with fewer casualties, collateral damage, and the humanitarian crisis as well. And I think where we move forward now is that absolutely we need to be more positive in working with Saudi Arabia. The fly in the ointment is the fact that if you don't do this wisely, uh, and the next few months will be pivotal to this, you will see Saudi Arabia turn their backs on the West completely and befriend China and Russia. And that will take us into a very different 
dynamic in the Middle East. Given the fact that the UK has a long history of promoting international agreements to regulate the arms trade, and has done so very successfully, I just wonder what the impact of the UK's supply of arms to Saudi Arabia and other members of the coalition for use in Yemen, the damage that this might have done to the UK's reputation, and therefore I wonder if the UK may actually be somewhat hobbled in terms of its ability to be an agent for peace and progressive change, particularly on the Arabian Peninsula. Certainly, I think there are absolutely lessons to be learned. It is more complex, of course, than the, the simplicity of saying, you know, our reputation has been damaged. The Saudis received weapon systems from right across the board. I think in retrospect, we would have been far wiser to be more involved in the decision making. We deliberately kept out of the operations room, so we were not involved or could not have our fingers, if you like, associated with any of the decisions that were made. And yet I stress, and Adele Al-Jabrir, the former foreign minister, has made clear that they are a new air force without experience in enduring warfare. They did think initially that they were able to sweep through and push the Houthis back into the north, and we would settle back into some form of arrangement of political dialogue. And insurgencies are much tougher uh, to deal with, particularly when you have other proxy influences such as Iran fueling this situation as well. And they've been very clever about it. There's been instances where a bombing has taken place because the Houthis have attacked from next door to a religious uh, memorial and Houthis were killed. But then the Houthis brought in artillery pieces and then blasted the actual, the old temple completely. And this has been identified because the, the projectile angle of the artillery shows that they came in afterwards to exploit from a disinformation perspective, what was going on. This isn't to sort of dismiss the absolute appalling atrocities that have taken place, uh, but this happens on both sides. Ultimately, Britain should garner greater influence if it's to sell weapon systems by having a say in how they should be used if they're going to be immediately used for war. Thank you so much, Tobias and Liz and Roy, for what has been a really wide-ranging and fascinating discussion. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release every episode of The War Pod on the 20th of the month, and you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for War Pod, or by following us on Twitter at war underscore pod. Thank you, and see you again next time. <laughs>